MFs, holiday time at Hustle Like You Broke. I don't know about all you, I just had the most non-holiday celebration of my entire life this past Thanksgiving. Christmas looks to be more or less the same. Wishing the very best to our listeners and reminding everyone that we are all in this together. If you're struggling, please don't do it in silence. Phone a friend or a loved one. Call Kyle if you like. As I've said before, I am all too happy to give out his cell phone to everyone in need. Don't call me. It's okay. It's okay. He doesn't mean that. That's just the way he plays, and you know this. You can call me. I will give you my number, and then you can call Kyle when I give you his. That was a song, Call Me If You Need Someone to Talk To, but I'm not him. If you know someone that's in a bad way, like Kyle or otherwise, please feel free to check in on them. Again, this is the holiday time. We like to keep things light around here, but we know that uh, this year hasn't been easy and it just keeps on coming. Next week on this program right here, we've actually got Zach Bohr and Chaim Newman from Backline.Care coming to the program. So you may recall we talked about them briefly on the Rody Clinic episode just recently. If you haven't listened to that one, it's a good one. But if you're dealing with some shit, tune in, listen to Zach and Chaim. They have a lot of interesting things to say. We are very excited to have them on the program. We've had a number of good ones lately, including our election pileup episode, where we had a half dozen great guests, among them Jim Digby, whose event safety summit we'd like to tell you about on the day of our airing December 8th for our listeners out there, the event safety summit will be ongoing. We are actually dropping on day two of their five day summit. The conference runs from December 7 to 11. The lineup is stacked. Uh, so we hope everyone tunes in, go to eventsafetysummit.com and register to hear more about the developments and what they have dubbed the new normal. We are big fans of Jim. We are big advocates of everything that he is doing with the ESA. So we hope you'll sign up. We hope you will tune in. We hope you will learn more about what is going on and uh, be more prepared when we get back to work, whenever that may be. In other news, what other news? As you know, I check Polestar every day for signs of life in this industry. There has not been a single announcement about a live engagement on Polestar since before Thanksgiving. Although it appears Australia is coming back strong in 2021 as they look to be ramping up on even more festivals than in years past. Starting to feel a little bit like the rest of the world is getting this COVID under control, and the U.S. is just falling further and further behind. By the time we are airing, we will be over 15 million reported cases just yesterday, 3,157 deaths yesterday alone. 
And whether you believe in those numbers, whether you like the word spike, Mr. Hamilton, (laughs) the fact is hospitals across the country are reaching and exceeding capacity. I know where you live, both Brothers Hamilton and Brothers Banks, the world is shutting back down again. Brother Banks, you seem to be the biggest, busiest man in show business these days. How are you holding up? I'm doing all right. I am thankful to be out there and getting poked daily in my nose. Um, but I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm happy to see that people are getting this testing thing down. And I think that's what's helping in Los Angeles get you know everybody back to work. Well, we hope that that continues to spread far and wide because it seems to me the entertainment business might have a good handle on it, at least with respect to live streaming and recorded events. But the rest of the city and county may not be quite in the same place. What do you say to that, Brother Hamilton? Well, you're right. Um, People aren't adhering to what needs to be done so as a result of it you know we uh are put back on punishment i can't go let off any range bullets down range so i gotta i guess i can't shoot in the sky <laughs> so I just, <laughs> it's a felony i know so i just gotta just sit back and relax and chill do absolutely nothing do some i've been doing a lot of luya though but you know the luya is uh it's not challenging I need a challenge right now. Uh, We appreciate you, uh, you know, refraining from shooting (laughs) directly into the sky. The fuck that means. You know how uh, people do in the Fourth of uh, New Year's in L.A. They shoot in the sky. Fucking stupid is what that is. is. Is very stupid. But you you shoot the ground, you get a ricochet. You know, you shoot in the sky. You know, you don't know where it's gonna land, and then it can end up in the death. So you know, it's it's rough. That's so reckless. Dallas, make him stop. Jump in here. How you doing today? I mean, I live here in Miami. We we have those kinds of things happen in New Year's. People shoot guns in the sky. So you know, Matt, you act like Matt. You live on an island. They don't shoot on on New Year's. They don't shoot in the air. There's no people there, Kyle. It's just him on his island. Uh, that is, I mean, I, I might live on an island of one in my mind, but that is not actually a geographic fact of the matter. Uh, where I live is is kind of like a college campus. On 4th of July and New Year's and holidays like that, everybody just throws beers in their backpack, you know, loads up their red solo cup, takes a walk around the streets and just checks in on, pe- I mean, not in 2020, of course, this year has been kind of fucked, but in general... Halloween, people give out cocktails where the kids pick up candy. It's, uh, I, this is a place to be. But no, no, not in my experience has anyone fired off guns in the sky. They do clay pigeon shooting with their blazers. That's what happens on Matt's Island. <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, yes. Shot anyway, Here's your anyway. rifle, Mr. Walt. Freshly oiled. Thank yes. you. And your Tito's, your double Tito's on ice with no fruit. Uh, always double Tito's on ice, no fruit. That, that is a fact of life. Now, I do want to call attention to one thing I saw in the news today because this scares me a little. I saw a report that in the absence 
of leadership coming from, you know, the president himself. There are reports that the ex-presidents, Obama, Bush, and Clinton, are all stepping up to provide leadership in his absence. And I just want to know, am I alone in feeling this weird sort of relief that W is actually doing something good for this country? Like, is that not the ultimate fucking irony to look at George W. Bush and say, thank God that guy is taking the leadership voice? That is true. I've 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 come to appreciate him more and more now. It's like, hey, hey. I mean, it just speaks to just how fucked up the world is. But in the in in the good news department or more good news department, there is talk that we are actually going to have as many as three vaccines. You see, everyone in the Republican leadership, all of whom were denying the existence of COVID up until recently, saying there was never going to be, that it was just a political ruse, that it was all going to go away, that the headlines would disappear just as quickly as the election has passed. Of course, that's not the case. Things are continuing to go in the wrong direction. But as soon as talk of a vaccine comes along, you see every one of these motherfuckers rushing to the mic to take credit for their role in bringing this vaccine to the table, for getting the world back in order, because it didn't exist until it benefited them now to take credit for the possibility that it goes away before much longer. But I just want to know, and and I'm actually going to bring out our guest today, Kevin Antunes. Kevin, I will introduce you more formally. I will talk through your bio, and we'll get into your uh, you know, your story uh, soon. But, you know, I want to welcome you to the program. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Those of us who, you know, you, the rest of the world, they can't see you the way we here are able to look at each other through the beauty of uh, modern technology, the Google Meet. Kevin is coming to us from a very impressive looking audio studio, which I'm sure is making Brothers Banks and Hamilton feel a little bit funny right about now. Uh, I I don't want to say either one of them are inadequate because I would never say that either one of them are inadequate, but I can't imagine you're experiencing any inadequacy. Are you, Brother Hamilton? No, because this this podcast will now no longer be edited. <laughs> I see how it is. I see how it is. So you're just going to take your ball and go home. Is that how it is? At the end of the day, I don't play. We see a lot of keyboards and moves and stuff. I have, you know, what I need. But since you want to get caught up in the, in the visual, let's see how this sounds. Yeah. Oh. iPads, pitch shift. Oh, wow. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a detune your voice. To disrespect me. Not you, so. I apologize. On all of our behalf, if your audio is low. That's the perfect. No, 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 no. They have decided to take his ball. And go Negative. The audience will get a pleasant listening environment, but you will be out of tune. You will sound like Dork, Dark Vader. Welcome all. I I wanted to bring Kev out because I want to ask you guys a couple of questions. And and this is serious, and I really want everybody's opinion. First and foremost, 
there is talk that this vaccine may be available as early as May. You know, we don't have a crystal ball. Not, I mean, they're saying this vaccine will be available to in limited capacity as, as quickly as, you know, these next couple of weeks. But not but to us. There are reports that about correct. Ass. There are reports. Europe, Europe is getting it next week. There are reports vaccine. that we could re- achieve herd immunity in the U.S. as early as May. I, I want to know who? what you guys think. Who yes. says that? Well, says, Pence, says, says the ex-health uh, advisor. The guy is, yeah. <laughs> yes. no... I mean, Vice President Pence said that yesterday. Well, there you go. Yesterday, the it, day that's, of recording. That's impossible Thank to do. Thank you. It's absolutely Numer- impossible. Numerically, it's impossible yeah. to do. Because to get to herd immunity, you have to have 65 to 75% of the population uh, inoculated. But the problem is, I think, with all two or three of the vaccines, if they get out to the public, you'll get maybe 35, 40 million by April or May. That, you know, on 330 million people in the U.S., that doesn't numerically work out. This I, this and, whole thing reminds me of how the show The Walking Dead happened. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to get immune, all these people, and everybody going to walk that wake up fucked up the next day. <laughs> because see, I, I'm not going to be first. Right. Well, okay, well, see, that's, that's going to be my next question. Six so let's months not get ago, they didn't know shit about this. Now they got a, three vaccines? Fuck out of here, man. They're so, trying to kill so, everybody. <laughs> well, I, I mean, the, the conspiracy theorist in me, and I am not one of those QAnon fucking whack jobs, but the conspiracy theorist in me thinks that the Republican strategy is twofold. One is the more people that get it, the less people are going to need the vaccine, which, of course, accelerates the process. True or not, I don't know. The, the other thing is, of course, they wanted to be able to say more people are going to get it sooner than later so that they can take credit for it, as opposed to allowing for the possibility that, heaven forbid, a new president comes along, that it's on his watch that people get at this vaccine, and it looks like he's the one who actually made this happen. So that's my feeling. Kevin, I think your numbers are right on. I think that the number I saw was 70 million doses by May, which, if everyone needs two, means 35 million people, which is barely over 10% of the U.S. population, nowhere close to herd immunity. So, Dallas, let's just go around, and I'm curious. Dallas, when do you think that the majority of people will have access to this vaccine and we will actually be getting back to work? What do you think? Well, to the best of my knowledge, there's no actual plan except for the fact that we keep hearing rhetoric <laughs> that they're going to give it to the essential workers and senior citizens in you know, assisted living centers. But next to that, as a voter, as a citizen, I have no clue where I fall into this magic number. So to the best of my knowledge, A, we have no plan. B, to surmise that how it's even going to arrive at me, like, hi, where do I fall in at anybody's plan? Um, I mean, I live in a state with Death Santos. He used to be known as Governor DeSantis. We now call him Death Santos because he refuses to insist on a you know mask policy. I think realistically, you know, at best guess, it might be middle of next summer, and that's just being potentially positive. Or, but I think it's all abstract. That's that's ambitious. Yeah, so, exactly. do you think that means that we're at work next fall? Do you see a path to that? Well, I mean, if you look at it, depends if we're allowed to work outside the U.S. or not. I think we're, our probability of working outside the U.S. is going to happen sooner if they let us in because um, you see dates in Europe for next summer. Um, so if you work for artists that are U.S. artists and 
you know, we're allowed to get in there. Great. Otherwise, I don't know what's happening in the U.S. Maybe next fall. But again, there's, you know, nothing. Uh, so do you do you see and, and Banks, I'll turn this over to you. First of all, let us know if you disagree with what Dallas said in terms of timeline. Second of all, if there is availability of a vaccine, I mean, do you think that we will have early enough access to it if we are working with an artist playing these European festivals? Are you asking, you're asking Chris, right? I just want to say- one, I said Banks, yes. Yeah, but one, go ahead, Dallas. No, I was just going to say too, but I just completely lost my thoughts. So go back to Banks. <laughs> Helpful. <laughs> I, I absolutely agree with what Christina's saying. I mean, there, there is no plan. We haven't seen anything. We don't, there's nothing even on the market yet. Everybody's saying, oh, it's coming. We were close. We're at 95%. We've got this. We've seen all these numbers. But there's no plan. There's nothing that's outlined. There's no price. There's no anything. Like, who's going to have it? How are they going to transport it? I mean, you hear how it has to be kept at this crazy, you know, sub-zero temperature. I mean, most states don't even have that ability to even keep it at that temperature. You know, it's it's just a whole lot of, I don't know. As far as who's going to get it, are we going to get it if we work? I, I think that the way I've been seeing things happening with stuff, I think that it's going to be a requirement. And I think that it's going to be something that you will have to have in order to work, you know, with an artist. You're going to have that vaccine that's going to be necessary when you go into another country. Like we talked about Australia before, that they're going to require that to even fly to their country. Correct. Yep. I think it's going to be become a requirement. I mean, I remember the first time I went to Africa and I had all my vaccinations, you know, I had all that stuff. The minute I got off the plane, they took us all into a room and just started poking us. <laughs> You know, and that was my first experience, you know, and I was like, whoa, 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 hold on. What are you, know, what are you doing? You know, what's going on? And I think it's going to be that kind of situation. Either you take the vaccine or you choose not to work. Well, for the record, just to be clear, the Pfizer vaccine does require a something like negative 90 degrees Celsius temperature for transport. Exactly. It doesn't live for as long. The Moderna vaccine does not. The AstraZeneca vaccine does not. Both of them can be stored at normal temperatures. So there is a chance that these can be rolled out. I also saw an article that said, as with all things in life, that there is preferential treatment that will be given to people with money, that will be given to politicians, celebrities, avid travelers. Brother Hamilton, uh, do you believe you will have early access to a vaccine? Of course, we would have early access to a vaccine if we work with an artist, just like with the tests. You know, <clears throat> at the end of the day, people with money get preferential treatment, period. Like with the test, they come to us, give us a uh, test, it takes two hours to get your results. Meanwhile, everybody else was taking, you know, three or four days to get the results, if not longer. Not only that, it's like, end of the day, this, it doesn't stop you from getting it. You can still get this shit. So it's like you're going to force somebody to take a vaccine that does not prevent it. It just makes the case if you get it milder. You're still going to get the shit if you're going to get it. So it's like I, you're going to force me to do something that I may not want to do that's not necessarily tried and true is is three months into something that normally takes eight to 12 years to, to, to be certified health, to be certified okay. I think it's whack. Well, and, I mean, and, and it's not even a death sentence. You get that shit. Some people, yes, have tapped out. But again, I go back to what we talked about. We have not talked about 
the millions of people who've recovered. We only talk about the deaths that have happened over the world. And that's whack, you know. And then, again, it goes back to what I was saying. These numbers aren't necessarily right. You can have a gunshot wound to the chest, and you had COVID, you died of COVID, not at a gunshot wound. And that's another thing that's fucked up. So, you know, I don't want that shit. But if it forces me to have to get it, I don't know. I might. I, I'm, I'm on the fence about that because I don't want that vaccine. I don't take the flu shot. So why the fuck would I want to get that? And this is, and this is a strain of the flu just a little bit stronger. Well, let me stop you before you sound too much like a Trumper. There are definitely a lot of unknowns in terms of the how long that vaccine works for, how well, you know, how many people that get it are still likely to get sick, whether or not you could be a carrier um, or you could actually have it in your system and, and somebody else who does not have the vaccine. How many people uh, have recovered right now? Can you give me a number of how many have recovered? Uh, if you backtrack the numbers, because you're saying the mortality rates between two and three percent. So if you just take whatever number of the infected cases are and go backwards. OK, there's a lot more recovery that have died than have died. But the problem with this with this virus is it's is its transmission rate. That's the problem. It's not just like the flu when you don't want to take the flu shot. You could touch something and literally get this. You know, I was when this whole thing started in March and I was listening to the news in Paris on tour and. All our politicians were saying, oh, this is a hoax. It's a democratic ploy. Everybody on my tour, well, not everybody, but at least seven people that I know of for sure were sick. We had rock docs coming out to check them out. And then lo and behold, when we got sent home on the 11th or 12th of March, five people tested positive for COVID. And we knew it. And long before the, the symptoms of loss of smell and taste came out to the public, I'm on a group thread with some of my musicians and they were telling me I was cooking something and I was cutting some onions and the weirdest thing is I couldn't smell the onions. Mm -hmm. And then somebody else chimed in. I couldn't mm -hmm. smell. And these were all the people that were sick. Gotcha. You know? I'm not saying it's a hoax, but I'm just saying it's not as deadly as we're coming up to make hints why we have to get a vaccine for it. Now, Kevin, let, let's stick with you for a second, because what you just said was interesting about being on tour overseas. I had a similar experience where I was in the UK in late January. I was in Paris in early February. At that time, they were barely even talking about it in the United States, but it was everywhere in Europe. Everybody was saying, I was in Paris when the very first case happened there, and they were talking about the need to take precaution. They were talking about the need to take it seriously. I remember we sent our you know, assistant out to every single market we went in for two weeks straight. We sent assistants out to and, and runners to go to all of the area um, you know, pharmacies and, and convenience stores and everywhere they, they could look for sanitizer and masks and, you know, uh, wellness shots. We would, we're taking like, you know, those lemon ginseng, you know, energy wellness shots every day and things like that. I, I, th I thought I was the only one doing that. Oh no, no. I, I live, I live by those. But the crazy thing was across Europe, they were selling out everywhere. We were running into markets where the runner would come back and say, I went to seven stores and there weren't masks in any of them today. And I mean, people in Europe were taking this shit seriously long before us. Would you agree? 100%. And that's what made it difficult was we're on tour in Paris and I'm walking the streets in the morning and I see 40, 50% of the population wearing masks. And then you go back to your room and you turn on the news and in America, oh, this isn't, it's not real. 
it's going to disappear. It's going to be a miracle. And right. literally, you know, before, you know, some tours do a little prayer circle before the show. And when you go to walk in that room, man, I was like petrified because I'm thinking, wow, if this thing is happening right now, I am walking right into a Petri dish and mm-hmm. there's no stopping it. There's about 50 of us in this room. So it was scary. It was scary because at that time we didn't really know what was going to happen. I mean, to the point everybody looks back now and go, oh, yeah, we were, you know, locked down here and here and here. But when we were in Paris, we were thinking they're going to cancel our flights. We're not going to be allowed to leave this country. We're going to have to stay here in France. That was a, a, a probability that was high. It could have happened. That's it. That's funny you say that because I was in Jakarta in early March and we had a festival. We I had a similar experience where they have this ceremony right before load in where everybody is supposed to go around and cut this, you know, prepared dish and everybody's supposed to take a bite of it, you know, with the same utensils. And and I was terrified to be in this room to be sharing Wait, a dish. The same with these utensils? <laughs> you you would do that just normally? Every <laughs> We're talking about a country where, by and large, a a lot of them do not not use utensils. We went to to multiple restaurants while I was there, which was super interesting, Mm -hmm. but restaurants where everything was handed out on the table and everybody ate by hand. And the crazy thing was, and, and, and I have some mixed feelings about this, and I won't share my personal feelings out of respect, but these dishes, if they are determined not to be touched by the people at the table, they will be taken off your table and given to another table to eat. <laughs> that is the culture in Jakarta, Indonesia. But my point is not that we were sharing a dish. My point is we were sent home early without doing the festival because a there was of course fear that we could create this super spreader event before it really taken off in jakarta and we didn't want to be the ones doing a festival that was known for you know spreading the virus across a major city but two to your point there was concern that if we stayed through that week we might not be able to get a flight home a week later the country might just shut down, saying, hell no, we're not taking flights from Indonesia anymore. You're going to have to stay somewhere else. Yeah, Which, at, the, at the time, think, Paris Paris, and Italy were, their cases were super high. Although, ironically, if you look back and if you think back and are, are being honest with yourself, staying there might have actually turned out better and safer than being here in the U.S. Definitely would have been better food. <laughs> no, because I'm just as safe in my house. I'm good. <laughs> so, Kevin, the one question that I asked the rest of them, we haven't heard your opinion yet. When do you think, again, I'm not asking you to look into a crystal ball. You know, you're semi on record because we're recording, but it's not like I'm going to hold. You're not going to be tested on this later. When do you feel like realistically we're back to work? Well, like Christine said, my political answer would be to the best of my knowledge. Um, I see summer, fall of 2021. Okay. Certain shows because it'll I think it'll be based off of a combination of vaccine, testing, masks, and venue capacity. I think that's gonna be the the thing that you see the live nations and AEGs of the world doing, which is finding the right mixture until enough people are vaccinated to move forward back to a full capacity touring world. 
Well, I, I love the sound of that. Me personally, I think it's probably going to be closer to a year from now where things are really ready to be back in some semblance of normal capacity. But if there can be festivals in Europe next summer, if we can be touring arenas next fall, I am a happy guy. No I've, I've also about. heard some rumors about some types of rapid testing for venues, not just concerts, but rapid testing um, at the point of purchase uh, or at the point prior to the point of entry. Um, so everybody in the venue will know who's who and who's got what. Of course, that requires contact tracing that also delays the process of getting in, even if it takes 30 seconds to get a rapid test answer. Multiply that by 12, 15,000 people coming into a full capacity arena. You just turned your 90 minutes, you know, doors into a three plus hour process. True. But I think they could get the, the tests not just at the venue, maybe at a separate location. Okay. That would, that would clog parking. Um, but if you have you're that, referring to the Ticketmaster announcement, perhaps, where they said that within 24 to 72 hours of the show, depending on local jurisdictions, testing may be required and you will have to show proof on your third party app in order to be allowed through with your ticket at the point of entry. Is and that that's, that's a definite viable option. There's some other options that I've heard about, too, that I think will yield some positive results. Okay. Well, I like the way all of you guys are speaking. So my next question for the group, and Kyle, I'm going to start with you because I know the way you've answered this question before. Will you get the vaccine? I want to say no because I don't want that shit. I mean, I'm I, first of all, I'm not a sickly person. I don't just get vaccinated just for the sake of vaccination, especially over something like this in my mind. But um, if I were to give, I needed to make sure that it's it's not tested enough for me. It, it's too fast. It just showed up and it's ready to go. And it has to. If it was vetted properly, in my opinion, I would probably think. To, I wasn't against the the touring cocktail that you have to get when you go to you know third world countries. I wasn't against that. But this went from not knowing what it was to we know what it is to vaccine in less than 12 months. It's too fast. And I, and I don't trust it. I have to trust it first. So today, no. Will I, it, after it's vetted better, I'm not against it. Okay, fair enough. Now, Brother Banks, you referenced the requirement that we may have to enter certain countries as a reason for getting the vaccine. And I agree with that. But Save for that being a requirement, will you get the vaccine? I think it's going to even come down to requirement here in order to work with artists. I mean, we have to get tested now, daily, throughout the day. I think it's going to become a requirement. It's going to be a choice whether you want to work or not. And, I mean, I honestly, the way <laughs> my life is set up in my bank accounts and my bills, I'm going to have to do it. If it comes down to it. All right. All right. I respect that. Dallas. You agree? I agree with both Kyle and Chris. I think, you know, <laughs> I don't want to be the first in line for sure, but I don't think it's going to be, I don't think I'm going to have a choice in the matter at the end of the day. If I want to work, I'm going to have to probably comply, but I definitely think it would be nice if they could do a little more research, <laughs> but I guess our essential workers will find out for us. 
And then it say they kill a whole bunch of people as a result of then what? Oh, well, we had to get it out there. Because they did have some deaths happen as a result of that shit. But they didn't really talk too much and about it. And some mental issues. That's the other worry. Some people who had some psychotic issues. Psychoses. With the vaccine. Kevin, yeah. any disagreement out of you? Um, I kind of agree with all, all of you. I think Kyle brings up a very interesting point earlier. I've never had a flu shot either. Um, I can't remember the last time, knock on wood, that I actually had the flu. I uh, just practice good hygiene, wash my hands, carry my sanitizer. However, I think that this version of this coronavirus, because there have been several, I think that's why they were able to move their their research and testing to figure out how to come up with a vaccine so quick. I do think it's a bit fast for it to rush out because if the UK has given the green light to Pfizer, but the FDA here in the United States hasn't, that's a question I think everybody should look at. Like, what's the difference between the two countries' efficacy? What? Why? Why is that so? But I would get that vaccine because I put it in the same category as like the vaccinations that my kids had when they were younger, like measles, mumps. So I think it's better for the country as a whole and the world as a whole. I think what will make international touring challenging, as Chris was saying, is... I think it's going to be a requirement if you want to work both domestically and internationally, because I think some countries won't allow people in if they don't have a vaccine or proof of a vaccine, because you could start another super spreader event somewhere. Well, I, uh, for me, I'm going to say that I'll get the vaccine. I'll get the vaccine just because, you know, I, I agree that we th- th- that there is need for testing. I agree with everything. I mean, frankly, I hate that we're all agreeing with each other. I would sometimes I wish there was a little more controversy. Uh, there was somebody who would say, "Fuck no, I'm you know I'm not going to do it. I'm never going to do it." But we're I mean, for all the reasons that we're talking about, we're going to need to get it. And at certain points, you know, Kevin, to your point about certain things are just going to be requirements for life. You get a vaccine for the measles. I'm not a you know Christian scientist. Uh, you know someone who doesn't believe in vaccination of any kind. So I, I'll go on record and say, yes, I will take the vaccine. Although I will qualify that by saying, I remember getting the flu one time in my adult life, one year. And the crazy fucked up irony of it is, that was the one year you got the flu I had shot. gotten the flu shot. <laughs> yeah, The one yep. year of my adult life. I got the flu shot was the one year that I got the flu. Yeah, because so, they give you a taste of it. That's how you get the antibodies. You get a taste of it. So they're going to give me a taste of the Rona and fuck me up. And then say I'm good. Man, please. So there is definitely a lot of unknown, but I appreciate all your opinions. Thank you for that. Uh, we're going to move on now, but I want to ask one more question before we dive into Kevin's bio. This is the fifth one and- more question. <laughs> Well, it's the only one more question that I'm going to ask right now until I ask one more after that. So, fuck you. Um, my question is, dear leader has certainly, uh, you know, lost the election. Let's just put it, go. say that. Let's just say that. I thought he this was a music fucking show. fucking lost. But he has teased the fact that he may run in 2024. What? So my simple question is, 
do you think he honors his word? He has been known. The one thing about him is everything he says he's going to do for better or for worse. He makes a play to do. It might be, it's, it's rarely for better. It's usually for worse, but he keeps his word and he always teases what he is going to do. He is now teasing. He is going to run in 2024. Do you believe that? Kevin, you start. Not at all. Fair Not enough. At all. Hopefully he's dead by then. <laughs> I don't want to deal Ooh, with him again. Oh. Like, enough. <laughs> Damn. I mean, it's oh, just geez. God. Just like, can we not give him any more time on this planet? No more anything. Thanks. Uh, no. I don't I don't think he would even have the ability. To Hopefully he's in jail. Not to put it as harshly as... Yeah, not to put it as harsh as Christine, but I, I honestly think that there's there's going to be issues when he leaves office. Brother Hamilton. You know damn well he will. Just like I said, he got this can his presidency off a one dollar bet with his boys. Okay, he don't care. He had nothing to lose. He's won everything. He don't care. He's go out there. He has won fool. everything. Well, he, he lost he, this time. Well, well, he lost this time, but. He's already won because he didn't think he was going to win the presidency before and won that shit. So. His supporters, gonna, his supporters have made him, a, what, another 150 mil just in the last few weeks? It's disgusting. Right. Yeah, so he's going to definitely do it. If he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Just for, for, for nothing else, just to say that he did it. Well, let's see what the Southern District of New York has to say about that. Thank you. Because over the next four years, to just say that you're going to run in 2024, he's going to be fighting a whole lot of things on a personal and company front. And if anybody in his administration right now that's part of his family gets pardoned, admission of guilt, if you get pardoned, then that's going to taint you. I'd be surprised if he says he was going to run and he even made it through, if he's still a Republican, through the Republican primaries. Um, I would think if he were going to do it, he would do it as an independent. As an authoritarian, uh, start his own party or some bullshit. But either which way, I think he will have some capacity to sway the election, and he will spend at least the foreseeable future attempting to do so. The question is whether the party, in his absence, will find a way to move on and get out from under his shadow. But again, I just posed the questions. What do I know? I think it is time to move on. Kevin, let's talk a little more about you. Yes. 40 minutes into the program, and finally, it is time to talk a little bit about today's guest. I'm just going to read a wow. little bit out of your profile. Uh, now hey, we're going to talk music, huh? There it is. Yeah. Now we're going to talk music. Hey, this we have always said that this what we do here is not just interview guests. What we do is bring people into our private lives, let them be a fly on the wall, listening in on the conversations that we like to have sitting in the back of the tour bus. And these are the things we talk about. This is real life for us. And uh, so that's how we roll for us. This is part of the job. This is part of our lives. And addressing the way we feel, talking to our listeners uh, about the things we think, receiving their feedback, that's all part of it. That's why, that's why we started this in the first place, just to have an open conversation. So there it is. But uh, again, Kevin, your profile reads, you are a musical designer, director, producer, songwriter, and digital audio editor and mix engineer, thus the very fancy studio setup that we can see in your background. You have more than 30 years of experience. Your skill set is the full 360 creative package. Having written additional scores and sound design for CBS TV special Michael Jackson's Halloween, 
reimagined and remixed Michael Jackson one for Cirque du Soleil's residency show. Very interested to hear about that. You have created and toured with Madonna on her 2020 Madam X World Tour, for which you musically directed a cast of 26 musicians. We know you have done multiple Madonna tours. You have done Shakira, uh, Shakira, Rihanna, Justin Timberlake, Janet Jackson, Britney Spears, and Sync. New Kids on the Block, Boston Guy, as we talked about, top of the program. Give it up to the New Englanders in the house. Fuck all y'all, L.A. Fuck all y'all, Raider fans. Raiders. Wow. Raiders got blown the fuck out this past weekend for those who want to talk a little football right now. (laughs) (laughs) We got touched. We got touched. We got touched. Anywho, I apologize. I got caught up uh, in, 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 yeah, my own silliness. But Kevin, we appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for bearing with us as we go through our usual opening. We like to have these conversations, as we say. But you obviously have a, a very storied and interesting career. You've worked with the biggest, some of the biggest artists in the world. You did get your start as a New Englander, as a, a native of the Boston area. Did you start with New Kids? You did say you worked with them early on. It does appear your resume starts around the New Kids, Mark, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch era. I have to give a shout out to Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch because, I mean, Triple Threat, there it is, JT, Triple Threat. You definitely work with the Triple Threats. <laughs> yeah, I've... I've been extremely fortunate and lucky over the years. Um, I'm from New Bedford, Massachusetts, and so I actually got my start. My family's musical, so I'm of Cape Verdean descent, so playing like traditional Cape Verdean music and playing that music with my father and my uncle, my brothers, my cousin. So the three... The three of us, me, my brother Derek, my cousin Troy, we started our own little band, drums, bass, keys. And um, we had these dreams of being, you know, an artist or a band or something. And those ideas kind of got squashed. This is actually funny. I haven't said this in a in like any interview, but we had did a talent show at my high school, right? And uh, it was back during new edition. So like there were groups coming on and lip syncing the new edition. They had the outfits and crowd was going crazy. It was in the gym and there was like all these different dance groups. And then we came on and we were a real band. Look, we didn't even play note one. As soon as we walked on crowd got up and left, man. We no. just stood there. We stood there watching them walk out and we started playing and they were laughing at us, man. It was cold blooded. Wow. Well, Obviously, yeah. you've gone on to do some very impressive things then. So if you've got to say anything to say to all of your, uh, you know, former classmates, <laughs> certainly you've got an open forum to give them the bird or whatever. Uh, no, no, let I, them I, saw, I saw them at, you know, the high school reunions and on Facebook. They were like, hey, Kevin, how you been? Yeah, I remember you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you said I've been at the Super Bowl twice. What about you? <laughs> three times, three times, three hey. times. Time get to update right. your get bio. Right. I see that but, on your bio twice. Not but pulling it back to the hometown. This this is what was really key. My father's in a band called John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. They okay. did the soundtrack to the movie Eddie and the Cruisers. And our cousins, the Tavars, 
are from the same area. So yes. in my world, it was it was a reality that you can do music and you can actually make something happen. Hmm. And they gave me the the teaching, the mentorship to get out there and just want to love music and want to just follow my dreams and make a career out of it. So I grew up wrapping cables. That's what I used to do. We used to have to help set up the sound system. And then when I started playing, I was uh, at a sound check with my father's band, Beaver Brown, and uh, Bobby Katoy, the keyboard player, was playing. And he said, you know, if you learn Green Onions, you can get up here during sound check and you can just sit in with me. So that's how it started. Very cool. Good story. I like that. And again, the embodiment of a hustler, somebody who learns from the ground up, somebody who, you know, gets in early, volunteers their time. And the great part about. the great part of it all, now you put me down this road, is a lot of the crew members that worked for my father's band, later on in life, they were on different tours with me. Wow. Like still to this day, Kenny Silva, the original drummer of Beaver Brown, he's a tour count. He was out with Journey like like last year, the year before. So all these different musicians and and audio engineers and crew members I've seen them go back and forth from different tours, and they're like, hey, it's Toons' kid from Beaver Brown. So good to see you, you know? <laughs> there it is. I like that. So back it up a little bit. My first question for you, not that I haven't asked a dozen already, is what is a musical designer? That is a term that came to me when I started with Cirque du Soleil, because I never heard of it before. And the reason they came up with it is, in their world, when you put together a Cirque show, um, what you would call a creative director or a musical director, they have uh, a fleet of designers. So they'll be like the, the, um, the acrobat designer or the, there's a lighting designer. So they had a musical designer. That's where it came from. Okay. And, and how does that differ then from a musical director? That's an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> and I think the biggest difference is the musical designer is somebody on their team that's not uh, closely associated on the day-to-day -day with the show. That's somebody that comes in, puts the show together, and walks away. And I think that's what I got from, from it. So where a musical director is someone who is hiring and working with the the musicians directly scoring you know the music that's been written what have you the designer perhaps is the one who's more involved in writing the music or the musical process itself in the traditional definition of musical director i think from their perspective the music director is the person in the band leading the band every night Copy the band leader that. and okay. the musical designer would be somebody that puts it they just came up with that term i think to separate the two jobs because they are close okay okay that's fair so we've actually had a couple of music directors on this program before we've had adam blackstone we've had ricky minor on the oh, program those guys are great they're fantastic so what makes you different from them what makes your process different tell us a little bit about your process well, what makes me and Adam different from Ricky is about ten million dollars. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's what makes us different. Oh man, okay, <laughs> okay. Um, uh, <laughs> my process is different. Actually, 
I find Adam and, and Ricky's process to be similar in a way. Mine is a little bit different. I'm not staffing different bands or sitting on um on a in a band on a TV show and having different artists come in. So it's, for me, it's usually one artist at a time. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's one of the differences. Um, as far as like the the creative approach, I think you'd have to have somebody that was watching all three of us to give you their perspective on that. Oh, come on. That's kind of a cop-out answer, isn't it? Don't you think that the person on the inside is more likely to have their own opinion and perspective on why they separate themselves from the others? No, no, no. I'm, what I'm saying is like I've I've played with Ricky once, and I don't think I've played with Adam, so I can't say what it's like to, to be in a band when they're putting it together, like what their workflow's like, what their day's like. I know what mine's like, you know? So I, I don't, I'm not sure. Okay. Deflected my provocation. That's good. I appreciate it. So you've been a part of some major, major productions you've worked with. Again, Madonna, Janet, JT. What, talk to us a little bit about managing the egos of artists like that as a music director. Hmm. It's funny. I, I, I would think that um, the egos are usually elsewhere. It's not usually the artists in my world. Mm-hmm. He's right. Yep. yep. <laughs> I, I'm not going to disagree with, with the, that, but for our audience's artists, sake, tell us what you the mean. Artists, what I find is that I'm managing expectations. Mm-hmm. And as far as egos, it's everybody else surrounding the entire touring staff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Whether they're on the touring staff or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or not. <laughs> I see. A master of (laughs) answering the question without answering the question. I like that. I appreciate you. So I got another tough one for you. So by way of these projects you've done with Cirque, as well as the Halloween special that you've done uh, for Michael Jackson, you are in a way something of a curator of his musical legacy. Uh, To me, that feels like it must be both a heavy burden and a tall order. Tell us about that. It is. It is definitely heavy. That's the right word. Because when um, Jamie King, creative director, longtime friend of mine, he told me that he was doing something very unique with the Michael Jackson estate, and he wanted me to meet John Branca and John McClain and come on board. They're going to do something with Cirque du Soleil. So I didn't know what it was going to be. And then Jamie told me it was going to be an arena tour because the first one was called Michael Jackson Immortal. And, oh, cool. So um, when we um, when we got a chance to, to get everybody in a room and I thought we were going to have a band because they said they wanted some of the musicians that had toured with them. So we had Moffat on drums. Uh, we had Don Boyette on bass and the legendary Greg Fillingaines. And that's where you get the differentiation between musical director and musical designer. Uh-huh. Right? Because uh-huh. if Greg's in the room, my hands are in my pockets. Period. Right? right? I ain't trying to touch a keyboard. But um, we, we had this meeting and I thought, all right, maybe they're going to have some of their artists sing or something. And then, you know, John Branca said, well, so, Kevin, I'm going to start sending you some of these multi-tracks. Uh-huh. And I was like, excuse me? He said, yeah, because when we do this, we're going to use Michael's voice and we're going to need all the tracks to make this happen. So, you know, after this 
giant contract and this, you know, 250-pound safe that they bolted to the floor of my house. I got the drives and some of these files. And let me tell you, when you get somebody like a Michael Jackson's catalog and you start going through some of these songs, you see the mastery from Michael Quincy, Bruce Swedean, who just recently passed. And every musician, vocalist that had something to do with these records, Teddy Riley. It's all in there. And some of the things that you think you know, when you strip away some of the parts and you have the ability to listen to each one of these tracks, it's incredible. I spent mm -hmm. hours on Thriller just doing nothing. I was in the studio, I think, for a whole day just listening to different things because I was like, you, I, I heard it in the original, but wow, I didn't, I didn't know that was there. I didn't know the cue put this here. I didn't know that Michael sang these backgrounds this way. So then it became my responsibility as both a fan and somebody who, when he was in high school, was a Michael Jackson impersonator to take this music and present it in a way that's respectful to his fans, honors his memory, respectful to his family, and, you know, having Jackie Jackson and Mrs. Jackson come up to you and give you a compliment after they see the show is it, it did something on the inside that's like that was their brother that was their son forget about what the media says that was their family and these people saw something in me to let me have access to this to to further push his legacy forward and it's an incredible honor and it turned into a second show the one that's in in vegas which um that one is there's two musicians in it that show is absolutely incredible it's driven all by the multi-tracks, and it's mixed in this insane surround sound. We don't even have a name for it. It's just, it's sick. There's like 32 different audio zones that I could control things and move things. Yeah, when we were when we were doing the Janet residency, Daniel Jones, her musical director, and I, we got a chance to go check it out. Yep, yep. And oh, you went nice. Talk about being blown away. It was it was epic. I felt like. I heard every song for the first time. It took me back into that first time I heard it. I'm like, yo, this is out of control. Yeah. And, and that's then, so good and, to hear. And Daniel was like, yeah, that's Antunes. He did his yeah. thing. I say, I, I say, yeah, he when I when I see him, I have to shake his hand because he his the the work that you did on that was absolutely epic. I thank, thank you, you for that. That was it was. I still think about that because I'm a Michael fan. And I got to tell you, a, a great story about that show is um, we had, coming off of doing Immortal, which ran for three years, I still had all of Michael's multi-tracks, still do, and still maintain the show in Vegas when mm -hmm. it opens up after COVID. Mm -hmm. um, I was on tour with Madonna. We were in Brazil, and I remember it being a day off. Everybody was like going to the beach and stuff, right? And I'm in my room drives all over the place, cables and power adapters so I can work on Michael Jackson one. So I'm working on a song and I'm like, ah, I'm going to take a break. So I was human nature and human nature wasn't going to be in the residency show. It was in the touring show. So I was cutting it apart and I was like, ah, well, let me take a break. So I go get a coffee. I walk into this coffee shop and on a radio in the coffee shop, never can't say goodbye is on. Mm -hmm. So I'm in my head. I'm thinking, 
Never can say goodbye. Hmm. So I went back to my room. I took the vocal from Never Can't Say Goodbye and I put it into human nature. And mm. I did this whole arrangement of this thing. And I thought, wow, that was cool. I was supposed to be working on something else. But I did mm. that. Then we get to Vegas like four months later. We're with the cast. And there was a, a number that was in the show that both the estate of Michael Jackson and Gila Liberté, the founder of Cirque, said, no, that song's got to go. And then they said, gee, what are we going to put here? And I was mm. like... I got some. I got some. Mm-hmm. So I I played it, and they were like, "How come you never played this for us before?" I was like, "I don't want to get in the way. You guys had a set list. You had a plan. You know, I don't want to mess it up." And so we put that in the show, and it's like one of the best mm-hmm. numbers. Yeah, it's whoo! It just brings me back to that moment when we were just sitting in there. Daniel and I were just sitting there like, "Yo, this is what a show is supposed to be." This this sonically, is sonically, like. All the people that tour, if you're a musician or if you're an audio tech, the way that we love to hear music, that's what I was trying to go for. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm a fan of of IMAX movie theaters and anything that's got to do with any superhero, both DC and Marvel, in that order. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> I wanted I wanted to make sure that when they built this theater, because I saw it before they put up all the you know, the illustrious walls and stuff I saw mm-hmm. when it stripped down because it used to be the Lion King. Mm-hmm. Think of an insane 5.1 surround sound system, just like what you would have in your house. You know, you got your sub and you got your other speakers, mm-hmm. right? Then you start adding these clusters of speakers in different places in the venue. And then mm-hmm. once they start building the room, you don't see them anymore. Mm-hmm. But I used my MacBook Pro. I used a Matty Face. And I had uh, 32 different places where I, right from digital performer, could send things. So in the chair that you're sitting, you've got a stereo set of speakers right mm-hmm. behind you. Mm-hmm. So most of the time I would put background vocals. Uh, I would take like um, guitars and pan them hard left, hard right. So you could really hear those different guitar bits. And then on the chair in front of you, there's a mono speaker. So Michael's voice is always center. Mm-hmm. It bleeds into the stereo mix too, but it's also in that speaker right in front. So it sounds like somebody's singing right in front of you. Mm-hmm. And then take take Smooth Criminal. When the breakdown in the middle of the record happens and you hear the strings playing, mm-hmm. there's speakers in the side of the walls that are playing. Mm-hmm. So it's like the strings just literally wash all over you. It's yeah, it, was, it was it was full immersion. You were immersed in audio. It was it was incredible. They, they, what you guys did with that sonically and who. Uh, did you mix that? Who mixed that? Because it was... I, I did, and I had um, a few other people working with me. Gotcha. Yeah, I had, it, was, um, it was definitely John, Jonathan Jonathan Deans, who helped design the... Well, he designed the room and designs mm-hmm. all the sound systems for Cirque. Uh, Glenn Irwin, tour programmer, mm-hmm. who also worked um, putting some of these things together. So it was it was a collaborative, and of course, the estate, Guy, and everybody wanted to say what they thought about the mixes, but the mixes were... I started by taking the multi-tracks and A-Bing it against the album versions mm-hmm. so that I knew that Thriller sounds like Thriller. Once we right. had that, then it's like, all right, now let's try this. To spread let's it out, sh- to get the spacing. Gotcha. Correct. Mm-hmm. You know, and we added certain things. So like, not to give away the show, but when the zombies jump off the rafters, bungee cord down into the crowd, mm-hmm. there's like Alfred Hitchcock violins. Mm-hmm. They play when they drop down, but they come from the speakers right where they are. Mm-hmm. So you have sound placement where the characters are, which is, you know, a different way of thinking. I, I've never before or after had that opportunity to approach 
sound design, musical direction in that in that way. Yeah, because you also had the an endless of budget. Cirque. Once upon a time. <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, endless time. That's what you guys got to see is, you know, for tours, most tours in my prima donna days, <laughs> prima donna. <laughs> So you fucked yourself up there. <laughs> Prior to Madonna, rehearsals for tours used to be like three weeks, right? Maybe mm-hmm. a little longer. Then once I started with her in 08, it became three months. Mm-hmm. So you get used to when people say, wow, why are Madonna's shows like that? It's because that woman knows how to work. Right. And she's real detailed. So when she's like a master class every day of working with her. So after all that time of doing those tours with her, when I got to putting that show together with Cirque, it was like a year and a bit mm-hmm. before the first show. So I had all this time and I had all this knowledge that I gained from working with Madonna that I could combine the two. So that was very valuable. Yeah. I was going to ask that. I was like, it, you know, your time with Madonna is almost like a boot camp for Cirque. I mean, cause her show is filled with theatrics and acrobats and, dancers and i mean all kinds of effects so it feels like that was like your your schooling and your boot camp to take you to that next level with the surf thing oh it is and i tell you the benefit of being from new bedford massachusetts and starting with the new kids on the block i started with a boy band mm-hmm. and i worked for them in sync backstreet britney so all these artists that lend themselves to all kinds of uh theatrics that you see in a show and dance and then growing up idolizing Michael and his brothers and, you know, watching those concerts and thinking, wow, if I ever had the chance, this is what I would do. So like just the way the music's arranged and then being a fan of film and the sound design that you hear those sound effects, I would add that stuff into my musical arrangements. You know, a lot of people would ask, how come when the band that I play with, when we do a hit, like say you hit, hit on the one, why does it sound like so, why does it sound like that? Because we have the same instrumentation. Well, I would take like, just before the hit happens, I would take like a tombstone and have it drag with like a reverse cymbal that's tuned down like, you know, an octave. Have that going with the hit. So once you get those kind of sounds happening, it changes your perspective on what a musical director is. It's not just what I can play or the others can play. What can I add sonically to paint the picture that this artist is after. And then I work with the choreographers, the lighting designers to figure, gee, how can I change what you do so that we can bring more out in this artist? So it's more than more than the music. Sounds like you just answered the question about what a musical designer is. So I'd like to get back to the boy bands actually in a second, but before we move on to that, you kind of touched on this already and, and in, especially in reference to your experience with Madonna, but Given your experience with Cirque, are there any lessons to the way they approach touring, production management, designing direction, or otherwise technology, uh, perhaps lessons that you think the rest of the music industry and those of us in the touring world should learn? From Cirque du Soleil, you mean? Mm. They are cutting edge and they are all artistic. They're super technical, but they're all artistic and they they lead with their heart. And that's what I love about Cirque du Soleil. And Guy La Liberté created something really unique up there. I mean, when you see the facility in Montreal, it is literally 
larger than some universities that I've been to. Their costuming department is it's bigger than most hotels that we stay in. Like it's amazing. And the detail in the costuming, which could lead itself to creating a particular musical piece. So they they work in this this real close environment where everybody's ideas, you know, bounce off of one another. Like when I say a costume, say somebody's wearing like this cloak. They they'd give you the cloak and you're like, wow, what does that feel like? What is Ooh, now I'm feeling moody. Now let me try this music. It's going to feel this way. Okay. And then sonically, I mean, them having their, their relationship with Jonathan Deans, the sound designer, that was like every day I'd come to work and we would work during the day and my mix times were like 10 p.m. till 3 a.m. because nobody was there. I could be as loud as I want and hit the DB level that we knew we had to hit which is louder than everybody else's show, thank God, you know? Um, and it's it was amazing. I got to sit in different chairs in that room with my laptop and my interface and to see what it sounds like. So literally, no matter where you sit, there's like 2,000 seats, no matter where you sit, it still sounds, it's a different experience, but it sounds great. So it sounded like you were able to steer the audio when you with your laptop while you were sitting on it in any particular seat for designing how you want stuff to sound? Yeah, not just steer. Literally, I had my full session on mm. my laptop with drives. I'd set up a little station, and then I would sit in that place, listen to like five or six different things. And I'll tell you, the hardest, <laughs> the hardest thing to mix was um, it was that bass sound in the way you make me feel. It's it, it, you wouldn't think it, but man, it was because the way the subs are sit, situated in that room, that boom, 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 mm. boom, that that sound, it cycles so much, and the bass starts to fill the room that you have to do something with the EQ so that you mm-hmm. don't overwhelm the people sitting in the middle when that first right, where it sounds right. Yep. Yeah. So that that one was tough, but we made it through. All right, so let's move on, talk a little bit about the boy band era. So you started <laughs> out in the New Kids Hanging Tough days. Again, I grew up in New England myself. I remember all the, uh, uh, my fellow primarily female classmates, uh, very much into that, dressed the parts, knew all the songs. You worked with NSYNC, Backstreet. Uh, we saw Nick Lachey. We talked about Marky Mark. Certainly you've worked with JT in other capacities. Um I'm curious the lessons to be shared from the boy bands. You talked a little bit about the theatrics. You talked a little bit about the dancing. But most people think of this music. Most people think of Britney and they think, you know, bubblegum pop and what have you. But so much of that music has actually endured. So many of these artists are still touring to this day. Um, You know, what lessons, as somebody who's seen it from the inside, can you share about, about those artists and the music that they make and the relationship they have with their fans. I think that music listeners should just take a second and not judge artists so harshly. You know, here you have a boy band that's coming up before they were called a boy band. They were just, you know, a group, singing group. And the new kids on the block are, those are my best friends still to this day. Still talk to Donnie all the time. And, there's like nothing I wouldn't, I would, if I had, if they needed something and I could get off a tour to go help them, 
I would be there. There's actually two things that I did with them when I stopped the schedule because Donnie wanted to have the whole new kids comeback thing. I don't know if you know that they were back out again. So he wanted to do this idea with the new kids and the Backstreet Boys and call it NKOTBSB. So he called me up and asked me what I thought. And I said, look, I'm working on this Michael Jackson stuff in LA. Why don't you come by the studio? We'll talk about it. So we came by and then I think I was working on Rihanna too. And we started piecing together, you know, like, please don't go girl. I want it that way. We started putting together an idea for the American Music Awards that would work for these guys. And it became this long, like, I don't know, seven to 12 minute piece that launched the tour all because of my connection working with the new kids on the block, which came from my father because my father was friends with Maurice Starr, who was the producer and helped put the group together. And Maurice said he needed a band. So served us up. All right. And then so, in sync, before you change to another subject, you can't have the talk about that and not talk about in sync because that was the tour that was like, and I love those guys too. You know, I see Joey Fatone all the time. And that group was so special for so many different reasons. I mean, look at, uh, we did sailing at the American Music Awards with Christopher Cross, who recently just, he got covid bad i don't know if you've seen him on his twitter but like he he couldn't walk he was like in that that three percent category where you know but we got to work with people like christopher cross and all these other different artists that wanted to come and perform with in sync because they love their music so that exposed me as a musical director to different opportunities to play different music and to get called to do other things because of in sync and then of course you know you have all those singers in that group they're just incredible artists. Okay. So let's shift gear to your experience in education. We know that you have guest lectured at a number of universities. Uh, I have a list here includes Full Sail, uh, Northeastern, your alma mater, Occidental, University of Florida, Middle Tennessee State. And I'm curious, again, just looking at music and looking at touring, as we are primarily a touring-oriented bunch ourselves, I'm curious what you think the strengths and weaknesses are in terms of the education taught to at, at the, the college level to aspiring music industry professionals. I think that their curriculum is sound. And I think that the changing times... Um, have forever changed the landscape of the music business, starting with the record industry, because that is what affects us as touring professionals. So knowing the history, I think, is really important. You know, in another world, I was a royalty accountant at Atlantic Records, so working on some of David Foster's projects, which is kind of funny. Um, but seeing how the music business incorporated all these new platforms, all the streaming, all the downloading, watching it from when Sean Fanning did Napster, who went to Northeastern. Following that into how it constricted the record sales in the mid-2000s and how that impacted tours, because that's the money's got to come from somewhere to put a tour out. So if you understand that that's what's happening because of the business side, I think that everybody, both in college and out, 
should know that that's what's happening. I think everybody should pay attention to what's going on with streaming and how much money is being paid, how little money is being paid to artists, because that is something that's going to somehow affect what we do as touring professionals. Um, I find that the students that I've had the the honor to sit with and talk, they're super advanced now, much, much more into technology than I ever was at that age. And finding that right mix and right balance between technology, musical creativity, and knowledge of the business itself, I think those are the things that they need to focus on in school. Well, just to push back on that a little bit, I, I need to ask, with the possible exception of MTSU and Full Sail, which both have fairly robust touring departments focused primarily on the technology side, I've often felt, and we've talked a lot on this program about how there is, in my opinion, a deficiency in terms of the amount that uh, of education done on the touring side. It is about the record labels. It is about streaming. It's about publishing. It's about, you know, contracts and what have you. But there's not much talk about production management, life on the road, you know, tour accounting and that sort of thing. Do you, is your experience different? I mean, I grew up on the road. You know, my father's band touring. So, you know, when you've got your father telling you, look, you spend two hours on the stage, 22 hours working close quarters with a bunch of people. So you better be a good person. Treat everybody with dignity and respect. So that that part of it, that pretty much says it all. And as far as keeping egos in check, as you said earlier, if you follow that creed that you got to live close quarters with everybody and treat everybody with dignity and respect, you're not going to have that problem. You know, being a Libra, I can balance everybody out and do my best to try and keep tempers down, keep morale up when you have to rehearse, you know, 18 hour days to just keep everybody going. And having a plan, I think, is is really strong. Like most people that have worked on tours with me know that, you know, from uh, I'm going to work from 11 to 2 and then from 2 to 3.30, we're going to have lunch. From 3.30 to 7, we're going to work. From 7 to 8.30, you're going to have dinner. And then if we do something afterwards, that's it. And then, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. We're back at it again. On Madonna, that's six days a week. So, and it's nonstop. Oh, so you don't do until? Eight, <laughs> noon until? <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. I, I've, I found that, like I said, prior to Madonna, with tours that, rehearse for three weeks to five weeks or six weeks yeah we could do that we got it in us right mm -hmm. but when you know that you're doing three months there's a difference in how you have to schedule things if you want to get the most out of everybody and that's not just the musicians it's also your immediate monitor crew and your backline guys because you can't and girls you cannot just say oh we're just going to keep going because then once madonna gets there she's going to keep going you have to have everybody rested fed and in a good headspace. And it's got to be a great environment because if it's not, then the artist feels it. Even if they don't say it, the artist will feel it and it reflects in the music. And I, I think something that I've enjoyed when you say, what else should they teach in school? I've enjoyed identifying in everybody in the room, from musician to singer to tech, what their driving force is, what their superpower is. And it's my job to 
pull that team together and figure out what it is that they love. And maybe we can sneak that into the song because if we can sneak that into the song, now they got a vested interest and they'll internalize that. They'll play it a different way because it's something that they came up with or the mix engineer will do something different with this mix because I said, hey, you know what? That thing that you were doing earlier, the way you change that frequency right there, that's the sweet spot. You got to save that. Knowing that I heard it, that I listened to it, I acknowledged it in front of everybody. Not just tell them to the side, in front of everybody. I think that's important. Okay. So one more question about the education, and then we'll move on from there. Uh, we talk a lot about the importance of mentorship on this program. We talk about you know how to bring more young people along. And Northeastern, of course, is world-renowned for its co-op program. I'm curious if you participated in the co-op program, and I'm curious if you think there's some application for programs like that in the concert industry. Yeah, I would have loved to have done that there, but at the time, my life was super hectic, so I had to kind of bypass the co-op and just barrel through my education there. I I had a the benefit that Dr. Bruce Ronkin, who, when I first went to UMass Lowell, he was teaching there, but then he moved to Northeastern. And I had left, I did two years at U Lowell. I left my junior year to go on tour with the new kids. And this is funny, right? You know how like you apply to a school, it takes forever. You get all your papers and financial aid. You do all these documents, right? When you want to sign out, dude, it's one piece of paper about <laughs> that big. It's like, yo, I quit. I'm out. <laughs> So I left, I ran away, went on tour with new kids, then decided to go back to school and wanted Northeastern because Dr. Ronkin was there. He knew that I had touring experience, so that kind of was very similar to their co-op program anyway. So I just barreled through it. The co-op program works, though, for so many people at that school. And I, I think had I had done that, I would have... I probably would have been an entertainment lawyer, which is what I originally wanted to be if I wasn't going to be a musician. Okay. Well, Kevin, you've been a fantastic guest. Before we let you go, we always have a series of quick hits that we ask all of our guests. So tell us briefly, your first tour, what was it? New Kids on the Block, Hanging Tough. There it is. And do you have a favorite tour or best moment or memory that you can share with us today? Wow, that's a tough one. I mean, I've been fortunate to share the stage with so many people that to to just pick one moment, I think, is unfair to, to other artists. It doesn't have to be the favorite. It can be okay. a favorite. How about this? Playing the Super Bowl with Justin and Janet, being a Patriots fan, and being in the elevator and seeing Mr. Kraft the day after when we won, won. That was great. Are you kidding me? I was in the elevator and he came in. And I was like, oh, I'm from Massachusetts. He was like, yeah. <laughs> there it is. It's good to hear that not everybody remembers that game for the wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> Yo, that show. <laughs> All right. So my favorite question, we ask every single guest, if there's any one thing about the touring industry you'd like to see us doing better, what is it? Doing better. Hmm. 
Hard to say. I mean, if it was pre-COVID, I think I would have had a better answer for you. But right now, it's just tough. I think just in general, a little more kindness across the board. Goes a long, long way. My Uncle David was a musician. He passed away when I started this last Madonna Madame X tour. And what everybody remembers about my uncle was that he could be their uncle. Very, just very small acts of kindness just go a long way. Not to ignore people on tour, learning people's names. That's huge. You get a lot of people, you know, sometimes that ego thing that you'd brought up, they start, you know, feeling themselves, thinking that their face is on the laminate too. And I think maybe, you know, if people would just take a step back and appreciate the position that we're in because all these other businesses get to work right now, but music isn't because we need the audience. We need them just like they need us. And I think that that relationship is something of value and it's something to be respected. Well, you may appreciate the fact that we are 50 some episodes into this podcast and that is overwhelmingly the number one answer that we are hearing. So, (laughs) You know, your lips to God's ears, as they say, the hope is when we come back from this, people actually take those, you know, sentiments to heart and enact them on the road and uh, not fall back on old habits and, you know, the way we've done this for the last 40 years or what have you. Uh, So with that said, before we go, Dallas, Banks, Hamilton, anything else you'd like to ask of Kev today? Uh, why did I always come on, come to an artist after you left? <laughs> I did Rihanna right after you did Rihanna. I did Janet right after you did Janet. It's crazy. <laughs> Seconds away from rocking with you. When are we going to work together, sir? Well, maybe he was just, you know, getting them to a level that they were ready for you. Is that what it is, Brother Hamilton? Oh, uh, nah, nah. Kevin is, is by far, he is the man. He's the guy. It's, I've heard a lot about him. A lot, like I said, we met in passing a couple of times, but one day, hopefully in the near future, we need to sit down and rock out together on a tour because uh, it's, it's too close, like ships passing in the, in the night. Yeah, man, that would that would be great. That would be great. Uh, I just want to get back out and do something just like everybody else. And I, I hope if there's any musicians and crew members out there listening to this podcast today, just, just hold on. It's coming back. I mean, there's people driving Ubers, working for Amazon, doing whatever they got to do to make ends meet. And that's cool. But just remember who you are, right? Remember why so many people are fighting for this. They're fighting because America has a culture. Our culture of touring and of music is things that we fight for. So if we want to make it happen, we make these concessions right now so that we can be safe later, so that we can get back out and enjoy music. Love that. Dallas, what do you got? I was just curious about the Cape Verde um, element with Madonna. I mean, obviously, I understand your relationship, but uh, how did that come into the show? That You know, that's a great question. Madonna moved to Lisbon, Portugal, where there's a high concentration of Cape Verdeans there because uh, the Cape Verde Islands are off the northwest coast of Africa. They were enslaved by the Portuguese and the French for years, right? Um, and the reason why we ended up in New Bedford it's because they were whalers, and New Bedford was the whaling capital of the world. Herman Melville, Moby Dick, all that. So 
Madonna moved to Lisbon and fell in love with not just Portuguese music, but was always a fan of Cesaria Vora, so the the pretty much the most well-known Cape Verdean singer. And she would go to these different living room sessions in Portugal where people would bring an instrument or somebody would dance, and she got exposed to that style because she has this innate ability to take different genres of music and kind of remix them. She was remixing before it became a thing, whether it was Spanish music, Brazilian music, or Indian things. So she fell in love with the music and wanted to bring different Cape Verdean musicians on tour. And she said, Kevin, we're bringing you people. How fantastic. Like, Did was, they, um, was, was it appreciated amazing. on both sides? Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> absolutely. It was absolutely amazing. Such a, such a different kind of tour. It was a theater tour and there were no musician spots on stage. Everybody would walk on and off. So there's no like set drum set or a percussion or, or guitar rig or keyboard rig. My, my rig, um, is the first time I've ever done this. I was set up on the side of the stage. And then if I played on stage, I'd had to play like a, a little guitar. And to all the bass players out there, Ethan Farmer, I had to play acoustic <laughs> bass. And I got, you know, I got a bass string endorsement, Ethan Farmer. <laughs> just saying, you know, because you ain't the only one that's hot. I'm just saying. <laughs> Shout out to Farmer. EF. <laughs> yeah, I'll be taking his gigs playing bass next. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm over there holding on for dear life, trying to play like two notes. But uh, yeah, so I got to play acoustic bass. Um, not upright, but just you know, acoustic bass. And it, it was incredible to to play a K. Verdian song on stage with Madonna. She's got one record on, on her Madam X album that... She used a traditional Cape Verdean chorus and choir to record, and she brought the whole choir on tour. That's what I love about her. She's like, "Yeah, that choir is great. You're coming." Mm-hmm. There it is. Well, Kevin, you've been a fantastic guest. We appreciate you. Do you have any shout outs before we go? Oh yeah, thank you to Rob Stevenson. He's the one that got me connected with you guys. Um, he's in, in one of my best friends, an amazing, talented singer, and incredible vocal coach so for sure rab's a good friend of the family brother banks anything from you oh i just want to say that i've i've seen several madonna shows i've seen the search shows and i just want to applaud what you do and what you bring to this industry and to the table i've sat with tim Kovart several times and listened to what you guys have done and it's always an experience uh and it always makes me want to be better as an engineer, you know, and just to have that relationship and to make sure that I'm also what you said with kindness, because I know that's, that's one of the things that Tim has always said about you is that you're always gracious and kind and making sure that everybody is a cohesive unit. And I just applaud you on that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Brother Hamilton, what do you got? Hey, we've said it all. But uh, again, it's been a pleasure talking with you, walking with you, seeing your body of music over the years. And, you know, your team, the way you maneuver, everybody speaks so highly of you. It's, it's you know, it's just a good, when they say Kevin Antunes, oh, he's a great guy. He's this and that and the third. So that's a good thing to have as your legacy of, as well as how your music is killing. But to know that you are a good person just within. So Wait, wait, wait. Is legacy code word for old? 
Is that what you're saying? <laughs> not at all. Uh, what are you talking not, about? Not at all. Established. You, you still, you know, you, established. Yeah, you have a uh, your tourography is 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 epic. So you know, you know, this this is what you what you've left behind and what you are for other people to grasp hold and say, yo, this is how it's done to do it right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank so. you. Dallas, any shout outs from you today? Um, you know, Ozzy, Ozzy, Ozzy. Beginning of December, man. Where'd this year go? <laughs> Just trying to get through the next few days, you know? And hope yep. 21 is better for us all. And I'm in the same boat as you, Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Death Santas. We need to get yeah, it now. Yeah. That's our next mission. Him and Rubio. Outski. Bye-bye. <laughs> well, and Scott. Ke- Kevin Antunes, <laughs> musical designer to the stars. Thank you for being with us today. We appreciate you joining us. Uh, usually... We give shout outs to things like Brother Hamilton will say, wash your damn hands. And Dallas will say, get out and vote. So testament to you, Kevin, that everyone's shout out was to you today. We appreciate that. We appreciate you being with us. We appreciate our listeners. We hope that, again, you will have a happy holidays. We hope you are safe. We hope you are being smart. We hope that you are able to see some close friends and relatives, but that you do not travel to excess. You do not expose yourself or others to this deadly virus, which is a real thing. It is not, in fact, a hoax. We hope to get past it. We hope to put 2020 behind us before long. Check out our upcoming episode. Don't forget on Tor Health when we meet with the guys from backline.care. And, uh, you know, everyone out there, just keep your head up. We're turning the corner. We got a new president coming to town. We got a vaccine somewhere in the pipes. I hope our guest today, I hope my co-hosts are all right, that we will be back to work mid-2021 and not 22, as we've been hearing from some others. But whatever it may be, we look forward to seeing you then. And we look forward to getting back to life as normal. As always, we thank you profusely and we bid you good night.